Happy Monday, everybody. How's it going? It's going well. Happy Monday. Good to meet you, Ben. Nice to nice to be here. <laughs> it's good to be here. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, thanks to the audience for uh, tuning in today. Um, uh, sorry about the time change. I'm sure you got that joke a million times already, but uh, yeah, cool. So uh, welcome. We got Ben Stansel um, on the uh, Monday Morning Data Chat today. Here to talk about metrics layers um, and probably dive into some uh, controversial topics. Um, so this will be a lot of fun. Um, for people who don't know who you are, do you want to give a quick intro? Sure. Um, so I'm Ben. I am one of the founders of a company called Mode. Uh, so Mode makes a product in the data stack. Uh, we build tools for analysts and data scientists to be able to create work, distribute it out to their organization. Um, it's really kind of a, a BI tool if it, BI were built for, for modern analysts. Um, so a tool for being able to write SQL queries, do things in Python notebooks and R environments, uh, and then build dashboards and charts on top of that that people can explore and, and kind of find their own insights on top of. So uh, just a Yet another tool in the modern data stack, if you will. Interesting. No, that's cool. And I've been following your writing for quite a while. I think it's how we got connected. I think uh, actually our friend uh, Devaris introduced us. Um, shout out to Devaris uh, over at Maroxa. Cool dude. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, and I've been following your writing for quite a while. I mean, what um, what are some things that are on your mind right now? Uh, Ukraine mostly. Um, right. Well, yes. But, but yeah, in, in the data world, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on, I think in, in the data world, it's been kind of remarkable actually over the last 18 months or so, I would say, um, just how much stuff has been changing, how much stuff is like still kind of being figured out. It feels like, uh, it feels like, so, so mode is, mode started in 2013. Uh, and it feels like we've been through probably three iterations or cycles of like, how people are thinking about the landscape. When we first got started, it was kind of the beginning of, of what is now, I guess, the modern data stack of mm. basically things moving to the cloud. Um, a lot of people asking questions of like, is this cloud thing really gonna work for data? Like no way people actually do that. There was kind of this like a uh, quiet period, I would say between 2016 and 2018, 2019, uh, when everything was sort of settled. And, and this was also when like, Periscope and Looker and Tableau all got acquired. Mm. A bunch of tools started. It felt like, okay, the market's going to kind of consolidate some. We're getting some patterns here, uh, seeing kind of where things are headed. And then over the last couple of years, there's been kind of an explosion of, of new tools, of conversations about what things are like the right practices for building this sort of stuff. Um, we were just talking about this uh, before before hopping on about the, the kind of explosion of conversations about what's going on in, in the data engineering world. Um, <clears throat> And it feels like that we have basically slowly migrated up the stack uh, for the things we're in focus. So mm. five, six years ago, it was a lot about ELT. It was the five transit stitches of the world. And then it was all the data warehouses. It was, you know, the, the years of Snowflake and Databricks and those sorts of things. Um, and it feels like now we're in the phase of kind of what happens after the data warehouse where it's like mm. analytics engineering, data transformation, uh, metrics, all these sorts of things and kind of like the middleware between between an actual warehouse and and the BI or dashboarding or whatever you want to call the, the kind of final step. That's really interesting. And um, I know the topic of, of today's talk is uh, metrics layers. Um, so this this is it seems to be one of the evolutions, which is strangely, I would say new to new for the conversation, I think broadly, but not necessarily new as an implementation detail. Like for example, Looker had basically, it, I mean, the only reason you would use Looker and the reason I was attracted to it back in the day was because it had a semantic layer built mm -hmm. into it, which I thought was pretty dang cool. But then as you kind of dive into, when I first saw um, LookML, for example, it's like, 
that looks a hell of a lot like a like a Rails app or a Django app because <laughs> I used to you know develop in Rails and Django, and then I started digging into it's like. Oh, I think that's because it actually was. They were just basically using like ORM code um, and templating languages to, um, you know, to to uh, to make something that um, you know solved a big problem for BI analysts, though, right? So if you kind of take mm -hmm. the software engineering piece and ignore that part, what it really did is abstract away, um, you know, a lot of the, uh, I guess, the, the troubles of writing SQL and made SQL somewhat object oriented, which was pretty pretty cool. Still is. Mm -hmm. um, but the conversation now seems to be shifting a lot to our metrics layers. Um, we do have a question here to kind of tee up for you as a softball. Uh, ben, can you break down what the metrics layer is for a newbie? Uh, sure. Um, so Looker is a good, a good way to sort of start describing it. So Looker is, is shaped like a classic BI tool. Um, the way classic BI works is you'd have tools that sit on top of your data warehouse. So you have a bunch of raw data in a data warehouse. So these will be things like transactions. Um, and then a BI tool will sit on top of that and does basically two things. Uh, first, it models what the relationships are between that data. So, so you have customers and transactions and products, and there's relationships between those things. It will define the way that those things are tied together. And then what it'll do is it will say, okay, how do we actually compute sort of business metrics on top of those relationships? So say we want to look at revenue. Um, if you're doing that on top of transactions, there's a bunch of stuff in there that you can't just like sum the price of the item sold and say that's revenue. You may have to deal with things like taxes or deal with things like what do you do with returns or purchases from gift cards. Um, or there's like, you know, gap accounting that you have to apply to revenue that may, where do you, when do you recognize the revenue is the date it was sold, the date the item was shipped, the date the item was received and it was paid for. Um, and all those things are, are like elements of business logic that essentially create a formula for a revenue metric. Um, and so you have to do that over and over again for all your different business metrics. So a BI tool would, would combine those two things. It would say, okay, we're going to find these relationships, and then we're going to find these, these metrics that we compute on top of those relationships. And then people could look at dashboards or look at revenue over time or whatever. Um, <clears throat> and Looker did both of these things. So Looker, the LookML code would define the relationships between the underlying tables, and then would define you'd have like snippets for how you actually do computation on top of that. DBT was sort of like the fairly transformative thing, sort of no pun intended, where what they came along and said was actually, let's pull out the way we define relationships into just plain SQL. So we want to join tables together. We want to clean up like raw data, like raw transactions tables and clean it up into like dimension transactions, which might have a bunch of stuff like properties added to it. It'll be cleaned up. You'll remove the, the dummy transactions or the bad data or whatever else. Um, so you don't need to do a lot of that, like joining together in the BI tool, but you still have to figure out how to compute revenue on top of that. Even if you have something that's like dimension transactions, it's not clear how you get from that to, to revenue because you have to deal with, again, these tax issues. Even if you have a column that's like, this is the revenue column, sum this one. <clears throat> if you want to look at revenue by month or by week, um, you have to figure out when do you recognize it? Like which timestamp do you use? Um, if you roll it up by week, do you roll it up by Sunday or Monday? Uh, all those sorts of things. And so the metrics layer is basically saying, can we apply the same kind of principles that we took with DBT around how we combine this data together and apply that to, to metrics? So there is a single standard place for defining metrics that doesn't exist in your BI tool, but exists for any tool that sits on top of the, the data to consume. So say that you're using a BI tool for dashboarding and you're using Jupyter Notebooks for your data scientists and you have some like machine learning models that are built on top of this. If your metrics are defined in the BI tool, then only the BI tool can use that definition. And the data scientists that are doing ad hoc work or whatever else can't do that. And so 
the idea is like, can we push the metric definition further upstream so that any tool that consumes it can, can use a kind of the standard definition? And so now there are some tools out there that are starting to do this, um, DBT being one, but there's some other startups that are focused specifically on this as well, where they basically provide, all right, you've got transformed data in your warehouse. They provide a new way to sort of query that transformed data through the sort of quote unquote metrics layer. And with that, you're essentially saying, I want to get a metric for revenue by month. And then it'll sort of figure out how to compute that SQL query and give you those results back. And this is, again, this is what LookML did, but LookML was only accessible by, you know, you have to go to app.looker.com or whatever. Um, these other tools, the idea is you can make it accessible via a JDBC driver or some other way that you might connect to the warehouse such that any tool that connects to the warehouse can, can use those definitions. That's interesting. Uh, Russell has a follow-up question here. Can you also add KPIs to the stratification of the metrics layer? Yeah, and I would say it's exactly that. Um, that that KPI like metrics are probably KPIs. Um, this is and this is a detail that nobody really knows how this is going to shake out. So metrics layers are relatively new. Um, their transform is the only one. There's a company called Transform. It's the only one that actually has a publicly available product, I believe. And I'm not even sure if they're publicly available. They're at least in like a like a public beta. Um, DBT has a version of this that they're you know talking about, but they haven't actually released the, the sort of full version of it yet. Um, it's unclear though still if, if like metrics will be basically be the same as KPIs, if people will define mm -hmm. thousands of metrics and say, these are our two KPIs that we care about, or if metrics will become something where it's like, these are the canonized KPIs. We don't actually create that many metrics. We just use a handful of metrics as defined in this metrics layer. And then anything else would still be done in kind of an ad hoc manner. Um, but the idea is basically exactly what, what Russell's asking here of, great, we have ARR, we have revenue, we have daily active users, we have, you know, profit margin, whatever else, all of these sort of computations could exist in this layer. And then that way, if you want to look at KPIs, if a data scientist queries for them directly versus if it's in a BI tool, we know that those things are consistently governed. Um, instead of having this problem where you run into it today, where an analyst will query something like, oh, we have to do some analysis on ARR. They have to sort of refigure, figure out how to actually reformulate that metric because the definition of it, that's like the canonical one exists in a BI tool that is inaccessible to the analyst as they write queries. Right. I think we've all written, um, SQL code, right. And, it, and it's also amazing too, like all three of us, if we were to write SQL for say a given metric at a company, but we worked in different departments. I'm pretty sure we'd have different ways of writing that or yeah. our where clause would be different or whatever is going to be different. And it's just going to have a different output. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I think that was one of the, uh, one of the motivations for, for Looker at the beginning was just um, a definition sprawl, really. I mean, mm -hmm. analysts just writing whatever the hell they want, because what are you going to do about it? Nothing. And even in your ETL teams, it's a huge problem to try <clears throat> to time. keep all these pipelines consistent if you define metrics inside of tables themselves or views. And then, yeah, you end up this, with a situation where analysts kind of pass queries around and sort of this weird folklore. And then you talk to different analysts like, oh, you forgot to take this into account. You forgot to take this into account. Yeah. 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 And, and, and Looker sort of solves this. Like they solve it in a way where within Looker that works, where if you're yeah. looking at revenue okay within looker presumably it will it will be well governed there is like a actually you have to use it properly like you could create 10 different revenue metrics like you could have retention is a good example where you could have like net retention and gross retention and 
retention that's baselined by what the customer was a year ago versus what they were when they tried to renew. And like all those things are pretty complicated. So you can end up with a bunch of different revenue metrics if you if you don't sort of implement it well. But the problem really with Looker is that, and this is something that you know, sort of what the metrics there is aiming to solve is you can't always do all the analysis you want in Looker because it's a BI tool. It's not designed for that. It's not designed yeah. for, hey, our revenue is down. Let's have an analyst go really investigate a bunch of stuff to see what's going on. Um, that analyst can't use the the definition that's in LookML because LookML is only accessible by by Looker itself. Um, and so the idea with like basically what Transform is is saying, hey, what if we take LookML and we pull it out, and then that way an yeah. analyst can essentially write a query directly against that. Um, it also you know it'll render to SQL, so you can modify the, the sort of rendered query and stuff like that. But that's that's more or less the yeah. Idea. Well, it also solves a problem too of um, you know when you have multiple dashboarding tools in a company like some departments might use looker some might use tableau some use mode some use periscope and it's and that's a constant thing too where um you know if you're defining these metrics within the bi tool like you pointed out i don't know uh which, which number would you like to use so yeah ain't fun to explain to executives and yeah and that's that's kind of where you know looker's marketing messaging in the early days at least was always this like single source of truth bit and that's that's always been something that sells well for for data teams, but in practice, probably a single source of truth doesn't exist in the consumption. Like there is no way to sort of have a single source of truth as you go to one website, and that will always be the only place you ever go because you need to consume data in so many different formats. Um, yeah, you need to consume it for BI, you need to consume it for analysts. It needs to be in ML models. It needs to be in operational tools. Um, ultimately, sort of the single source of truth has to be something that is above that. Um, whether or not it's DBT, metrics layer, some combination of those things, whatever else. Yeah, and I still think maybe the, the dark horse in all this too is Excel. Um, I think I wrote about this last month in the newsletter. And it's kind of like, it's funny because I, I see a lot of companies, you know, who've invested in, in fancy BI tools and whatnot. And the execs are still making decisions off of some Excel sheet that they put together. Mm -hmm. um, so it's this huge disconnect because like the big decisions, the ones that drive like the 80% type results, you know, um, it, those seem disconnected from, you know, these BI tools. So, I mean, I hope as well, you know, whoever's making these metrics layers, you're paying attention to, you know, the, the spreadsheet, the, the lowly spreadsheet. So that's yeah. And this, and this is, I think there, there's, yeah, there's a lot of stuff I think with, with, we're gonna have to figure out of exactly how, and this is something that we're working on for, for a week or so from now. Um, I haven't figured out exactly how metrics get combined with this like exploration Mm. of data where we're really to me the way people consume data in two different ways the but like people have those i mean sort of the, the business users or non-analysts or whatever to call that that cohort they either consume them by asking for a metric and saying like i've got a deck that got to put this together we've got a board meeting i need to show our retention rate over the last eight quarters segmented by region okay like that is a request for a metric um it's like an understood concept that they need a very particular display of it there's also the Excel version of this, where it's like, I need some data set that I want to play with. Um, that's more exploratory. This is more like, I had customer success and I want to figure out how can we make retention higher? Well, I'll go look at which cohorts have high retention. I'm not really asking for a metric here. I'm asking for like a list of all of our customers with some dimensions about them and different numbers about them. And I'll poke around them typically in Excel, but maybe like something like Tableau or whatever. The, the request for that is very different. Like what you're asking for in that case is a data set um, that you are wanting to apply metrics to. And so it's, there's, there's this kind of gap to bridge between we define, define, precisely define metrics, we can precisely define tables, but
but can we actually cross the chasm between the two? Can we make it where like I can go from a table and apply like the metrics formula to that table? And can I go from the metric and apply, like turn that into a table of all the customers that make up it? Um, it's, it's not, they're not quite the same mode of operation and, and we've split them apart a little bit in a way where it's like, and not exactly sure how we're going to, how we're going to bring those back together. But I think that's, that's what the next couple of years in this space will look like. Uh, what are your thoughts about? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, how many companies do you suppose have CFOs generating their official quarterly reports just in Excel? Um, I mean, <laughs> I'm aware of a few and it's probably, I don't know. What do you think, Joe? Is that the most common way to generate quarterly reports? I mean, I would say, I don't know. I, I don't have any hard numbers on it, but I do yeah. know that, you know, it, it's sort of just, if you're in finance, Excel is just what you're going to use. Probably it's, I mean, I have muscle memory still with spreadsheets that Makes I wish sense. I probably didn't have, but yeah. um, I mean, shortcuts are shortcuts. So no, it totally makes sense. And I, I mean, that problem alone, like you were saying, Joe, is worth a lot of money. So if you were to somehow able, if you were somehow able to combine that with the metrics layer and just make things easier for even CFOs, but in a way that's transparent to them so they can say, if they dig it down in the numbers, they can actually see what's going on. Cause I think that's what always scares people getting out of Excel mm -hmm. is that they, they're like, well, I can't actually see the calculations. I can't drill down. I can't look for inconsistencies when I find a problem. In well, I mean, try doing tests in Excel. I mean, I, I, when I build <laughs> spreadsheets, any ones that I'm using, it's always like there's tests to yeah. make sure at least things sum correctly. Um, but you know, what was it in, t in 2013, uh, HBR had a uh, article about how what was it 80 or 90% of Excel sheets have errors in them or so. Um, so, but then again, you, you factor in like anywhere from 700 million, 750 million to 2 billion people use Excel on a monthly basis. So I don't know. I mean, that's a lot of errors and somehow we manage to get by in the world. So, or do we don't, we just think we do. I don't yeah, know. I, there's, there's like a, a deeper, more existential question. Yeah. Of like, does any of this actually matter if we get it all wrong and it seems like we're okay? Exactly. Uh, right. You know, that's, a, that's a bear we don't need to poke, but. Uh, we can talk about that later, actually. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, um, let me see here. Uh, sorry, my screen went off. Uh, David asked, has a question here. Um, should metrics layers be accessible via Excel, like a function with metric, name, date, et cetera? So probably, um, I, to, to your point about how do you make this stuff work? Like, yeah, I, I would assume so. Um, I don't know that it necessarily makes sense to be accessible in Excel. Like, I, I guess, um, I don't, I don't know how you could make the same question to have the same question about like without a metrics layer of how, how do you pull data into Excel in a nice way when that data lives in a warehouse? Um, mm, yeah. I don't actually know how people do this today. I, my guess is it's mostly people saying, have an analyst say like populate this data tab and then i build a bunch of formula like there's just some raw csv tab that essentially is a staging area for data and everything else is sort of flows outside of that and mm. people in finance create all sorts of crazy formulas that sit on top of it um so yeah i you know i would think that you could do the same thing with with metrics in in this sort of way um that uh whether or not that gets used or not i don't i don't know it's also yeah. even if as long as it doesn't matter, because say you're a finance person, you want to look at, you know, revenue by month. Um, you could go to a tool that will say, okay, click revenue, click by month, click show me by this stuff. You'll export that. The first thing people will do when they get that table is probably export it and put it into Excel anyway. It's exactly so certainly like the Excel formula is a shortcut. Um, and a lot of the stuff, as you, as you said, it's going to end up there kind of no matter what, like that's, that's where people want to take it. Um, 
whether or not a user will call it directly from Excel is, you know, I, I think that's, that's a question for people who live in Excel that know this much better than I do. Right. I think it's a fair point. Um, I mean, thought, thoughts, kind of taking it back. I mean, thoughts on the modern data stack right now, because we're, we're, we're going to get into, um, controversial topics in a bit, or, or at least nudge ourselves towards mm -hmm. that. Um, thoughts on it. I mean, you mentioned, you know, it, it, it kind of came on the scene several years ago. Um, it's kind of undergoing maybe uh, things are undergoing an inflection point, perhaps or some changes. What what are your thoughts on the current state of the modern data stack? Um, I've made this point a few times. I So I think it's, there's a lot of stuff that's going on that's, that's useful and potentially powerful. Um, it is in a period of innovation, I would say. So, okay, so that's good. Some good stuff will come out of that. We'll figure some things out. Um, I think a lot of settling has to happen. And I think that will happen in two ways. I think a lot of settling has to happen. We are creating a very sort of incoherent product um, that, that like, what's the, Conway's law, I think there's this like one of these Harvard Business Review type of type of things. Um, this is essentially you ship your org chart. There's, there's no Con Conway's law. Yep. Yeah. That, like whatever your org chart is, say that you have a front end team and a back end team, you will ship a front end code base that looks different than a back end code base and these things won't match. Um, or if you organize it by like GM where you have your mobile team and your web team and whatever else, like you will ship a mobile product and a web product that look fairly different. It's like however you structure your org chart is the way your product will kind of appear. Um, the modern data stack is effectively a single product. Like for a lot of people, particularly, particularly the people who are just consuming it for like BI type use cases, to them it is a single product. Uh, they see it as this is how I get data. Everything else behind that is part of that product. And we hear this, so, so mode is at the front of that. Um, we have some customers who, who for better or for worse, when they ask for data, we'll say like, is this in mode? Like they don't, they're not aware of the warehouse. They're not aware of the ETL pipelines. They're not aware of DBT. It's all mode. So good for us. And it gives us visibility bad for us. If anything else goes wrong, they're like modes down. And it's like, actually redshift is down, but to them it's mode. The point of that though, is like, we have, we have built this, the stack is built with like dozens of products now. And so we are effectively shipping that org chart where the org chart isn't even different departments. It's different companies. Um, and so there's a lot of like incoherence in how all that comes together that, that it isn't, and I've talked about this some before, like this modern data experience, there's not really a, an experience here that makes sense yet. Mm. Um, the, the individual tools work, but like, if I am just someone trying to consume data, if I go to mode, for instance, and Redshift is down, what do I, I don't, how does mode know that? Like it doesn't really, if DBT pipelines are out of date, how does it know that? If something alarm is going off in Monte Carlo, how does it know that? Like, how do we make an experience such that all of these things work together as, as if it was a single product, because that's how most people are going to use it. The other thing I think that's like the tricky part of this is there's a real economic problem that's going to come up at some point um, and maybe very much sooner rather than later, given the current state of the world, um, where there's a whole bunch of tools that are out there. They've all gotten a bunch of VC money. Uh, in order for that money to be worth it, these companies have to sell to a lot of customers and they have to sell at a fairly high price point. Uh, and in effect, that makes the modern data stack very expensive that the idea behind it was like, Hey, it's a really quick thing I can set up. I can set it up in 30 minutes. I can use a few tools. Most of them are free. Um, the whole thing will cost me 50 K a year. That's way cheaper than the half a million dollars it used to cost me to get Informatica and Vertica and Teradata or whatever else. As we add on these new tools. So now it's like, well, I got to buy 
an ETL tool. I got to buy a warehouse. I got to buy DBT or transformation tool. I got to buy a metrics tool. I got to buy a consumption tool. Got to buy observability. Got to buy like data dictionary. Got to buy reverse ETL. All these things for the economics to work have to charge 20, 30 K. And all of a sudden the stack now costs half a million dollars again, just like spread across 10 vendors instead of two. Um, and so I think there will be some economic pressure to correct that in some way or another. We're like, I guess there's another world where like data becomes just so valuable that nobody cares sort of like the AWS path where who knows what AWS costs. Cause it's like the tax you pay to run a business and it costs half a million dollars a month. And you're like, well, okay. You know, tax man gets paid. Um, but, but I don't think that's quite where the data stack is. And I think there's going to be some pressure around, okay, which parts of these are actually worth it. Uh, and which parts of these are, are the ones that we absolutely can't get rid of. Yeah, and then I wonder, and I think many people have speculated about this, will we see an acquisition spree? And of course, the way AWS has made it work is they generally, I mean, they've started moving into more contracts and consumption commits and such, but in general, they just let you play in the sandbox and it turns out pretty soon you have a half a million dollar a month bill. Yeah. And to make that work, you need, you need one vendor, one bill. And we've kind of already started to see this with the Google acquisition of Looker, of Aluma, of some of these other tools. And of course, AWS and other companies have made their own acquisitions. So one wonders if all these small modern data stack tools will start getting vacuumed up, vacuumed up by big players, including the clouds, but also companies mm -hmm. like- What are you suggesting that the cloud would just have its own data stack that you would use? Possibly, yeah. yeah I mean, but they kind of have that though, right? I mean, they, yeah, they, they, they I mean, if you, if you, I mean, we, we work with both AWS and GCP yep. and it's, and I know they have their, their preferred stack that they want you to use, but. G the, the GCP one is the biggest question to me. That's, that's the mm. weird one to me. So yeah. G two years ago, well, I guess probably three now, Google was in such a good position to be able to do this. So they have the best technology for a warehouse. Like BigQuery, I think is the best technology, whether or not it's better as like an actual warehouse for users and so forth, like right. probably not, but like technologically speaking, I think BigQuery is probably a good bit ahead of where Snowflake is. They bought Aluma, which is essentially an ETL tool that they could turn into kind of a, or a both a reverse ETL and a regular like ELT type of deal. Um, they bought Dataform, which was this kind of DBT competitor thing. They bought Looker, uh, which in effect is a metrics layer. It's like Looker is really just LookML and LookML is effectively a metrics layer. Um, they have Colab, which is like a collaborative notebook thing. Um, they have this BI engine tool, which is like an in-memory data store for, for backing BI tools. Um, they have Google Data Studio, which is kind of a janky tableau. Like these are all the pieces. This is the whole thing. Um, and, and they never really seem to have a coherent way to bring them together. But like to me, once they have those things, the thing they should have been saying is, all right, there is now a Google data stack. Yeah. You buy it, you have one bill, you get all of these things. It's all the standard stuff. Um, you know, I, whether or not that actually sort of is a good thing for customers versus having the kind of modular open thing that is is sort of the the aim of the community, different question. In some ways it doesn't matter. Like if Google comes along and says, hey, you can buy all this stuff, it'll cost you a fraction of the price. If you go buy them individually, it all works together incredibly well. Like, okay, that's gonna sell. Um, and so my, my expectation was that that's what would have happened, that Google would have done that, um, that honestly Salesforce probably will offer some collection of these things. Um, Microsoft is sort of a weird player in the space that doesn't seem to be doing a whole lot, which is sort of surprising. I guess they're just like too busy making insane amounts of money off of Azure. Um, 
but like it felt like there was a there was basically you have there are the public clouds for cloud compute there will now be the clouds for for data tooling um that now seems a little less likely but i don't know it's possible that like snowflake it's becomes a version of that um and starts to look a little bit more like a salesforce application mm. type of tool as opposed to an infrastructure thing that is what aws mostly seems to focus on the gcp one's interesting i mean for full disclosure I mean, we're gcp partners we've worked with gcp forever um, we're the go-to partners for a lot of things, data, mm. um, you know, in our, in our area. And we did notice this, you know, I think to be candid and they'll, they'll, they won't mind us saying this, but it was like, you know, they had data fusion that came out. This was supposed to be the new ETL yes. tool. Right. And then mm. this, that was basically like they bought, you know, CDAP. That's what Cas that is. Cask, yeah. Exactly. Cask, yeah. So that's, that's, that's that tool and Luma data form. And then, but they're also pushing data flow, which is beam. You know, and, and mm. I think the official recommendation is now, well, one of the official, I don't even know what, depending on the time of day, um, you know, data flows what you should be using um, for your batch and streaming pipelines, mm. right? So, okay, so which which of these four should I pick, right? If, if I go to a, the Aluma equivalent right now, it's like, cool, I can hook up MySQL and Oracle, I think, to BigQuery, maybe. I need to go in the console and look, but it's like, cool, that doesn't really get me that excited. And I try and spin up DataFusion. So I did something once where I spun up DataFusion, then I spun up Matillion. And what I could not figure out to do in, in three hours with DataFusion, I got done in 30 seconds with Matillion because somebody wanted a graphical uh, just interface, yeah. right? So it's like, you know, um, so I don't know. Uh, simplicity definitely needs to be part of the game, though, for a lot of these tools. And I just think it's um, Google's great. But the, one of the things I think that they know they struggle with is they're really good at engineering. I think they probably pound for pound have the best products out there engineering wise. Yeah. The, the issue was like making them easy for users to use as well as marketing them in, in a coherent fashion. I think to your point, Ben, where it's right now, it's like, well, what, how would you like to get into BigQuery? I don't know. Um, how do you think you should get into BigQuery? And then, uh, you know, as well, you know, on these, um, because there's, you know, there's a marketplace out there too. A lot of companies are like, well, I don't want any of these. I'll just use Fivetran or Matillion yeah. or, or whatever else is out there. So, yeah. And I, and I, this is a place where I think there's, there's, I, this this could be a completely wrong statement. Um, I, I think there is some overemphasis on, especially among the big players, on like modularity and on working with everything in the community and on mm -hmm. being something that is part of the ecosystem. Like, I don't know what's going on at Google. I have no insider knowledge of any of this. If if I were in their shoes, I think the thing I would say is like cut that cut the ecosystem out, make it where it's like you're in you're in Google or you're not. And mm. I think that would put a lot of pressure on people to say like, well, which one do I choose? But I think their focus should basically be like, all right, let's make this stuff all work together really, really well and yep. make the sale that we have an amazing coherent product that is technically better than anything else out there. And if you want that, like, then you have to buy that. You know, I can't go to a car dealership and say like, well, I want a, I want a BMW body, but I really want like Toyota, <laughs> you know, like stereo. Like, no, I get the BMW and I have to make a choice. And I think, forcing the consumer to make a little bit more of a choice of do you want Google or do you want something else actually would help them some, as opposed to this kind of like straddling the line of we prefer you to buy Google, but buy whatever else you want. Right. Um, the way that really clouds work, like, sure. Yeah. You can use Google and AWS, but in practice, nobody really wants to do that. It's like, I am committing right. to which cloud I think is best. And I think you'd be better off with a data cloud. If you're a Google or an AWS saying like, our cloud is the best. We want you to choose everything. We're going to make it actually kind of hard for you to choose something else. Um, and that puts some pressure on us to make the other stuff good. 
Mm. And I mean, or you have the Oracle model where it's like, all right, we have this database that you really want for your front end application, and we're going to contractually squeeze you into taking all the other stuff that is kind of some of it's good, some of it's okay. Yeah. And like, Oracle, too. maybe like the counter argument to that, but Oracle also right. seems to be in some ways the opposite of, of yeah. the Google approach, which is like, Oracle knows how to market it and sell it. Uh, and then, you know, sort of pressure you into this. <laughs> yeah. It's like the used car lot where it's the, um, yeah. <laughs> Well, you, they, you don't they're going to beat, they're going to beat you up and then sell you the yeah, car. You will get extorted <laughs> into buying it. Um, <laughs> right. I guess you could do that. You know, made some people a lot of money, so maybe they should do it more, but, um, <laughs> you know, and, and this is, this is where like, I, Snowflake to me has the potential to do this. Um, partly mm -hmm. because Snowflake is a bunch of Oracle people, uh, partly because everybody says that Frank Slootman is just a killer. Um, I, I think like Snowflake has the potential to basically say, look at this market and say like, all right, don't care about this community stuff. We're here to come in to make a bunch of money. We're saying buy Snowflake and we're gonna like not participate in the same way that everybody else does. Um, and I think Snowflake could have that power now because it, as a database, it's become so popular that if people were like, you want Snowflake, you gotta buy the rest of our stuff. Uh, I think a lot of people would be like, oh, okay, we'll buy the rest of your stuff. And like, does it make your customers love you? Maybe not. Does it make you a lot of money? Yeah, and they still probably like your products. Um, so. I don't know. I think there, there could be a little bit more of like that kind of attitude in the space, um, especially for the people who who have kind of like the ability to do that because they are so big and make so much money that that they can cover it. Mm -hmm. Snowflake loses money like everybody else. So maybe that one doesn't count. But certainly GCP is like they've got the cash flow to, to make that work if they want to. I think so. Yeah, and it definitely seems like they're, they're, we're in the kind of the midst of like Frankenstack right now, sort of, sort of yes. the, the modern Frankenstack, mm -hmm. maybe. Um, um, yeah, and, and I've been thinking a lot about this too. Like, sort of, you know, one one entropy model is everyone sort of at some point a stack gravitates towards just being Informatica, right? Like, we we've seen this time and time again. One with Informatica, but two, um, you, you know. Um, there's sort of the default modern data stack, I think, that, that people say is the canonical, like Fivetran to Snowflake to Looker, I think was like, that shows up in a lot of diagrams or some variation thereof. Just pick like a tool and put it into a warehouse and then pick a BI tool on top of that, right? Um, but to your point, it's, it's very polyglot right now. Um, and one thing that, that's occurred to me in talking with other people is maybe like DBT, for example, maybe they become a marketplace. Right? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, it might make some sense. But then if they do that, then at some point, at which point do you just become the monolith that you were you know, uh, supposedly unbundling at some point? Mm -hmm. Bundling is also a very controversial thing right now for some reason. So yeah. Indeed, indeed. The other thing about the marketplace model is that we've seen this with the clouds and it seems like a lot of vendors don't want to play anymore. We're seeing vendors kind of depart from the marketplace because they want to own that invoice. Like they don't really want... <laughs> Google yeah. being the intermediate anymore, or and the clouds aren't yeah. doing good. Yeah, and the clouds aren't going doing a good job of promoting marketplace products because they always want to steer you towards. Well, it depends stuff. on the, you know. I think the dirty yeah, secret does. for people people listening is you know it, it's you, you got to look at how the salesperson that you're working with how are they getting comped right. So there's a couple ways they're going to get comped on whether the products in the marketplace probably right. Um, but if it's a third-party tool that's not in the marketplace, the salesperson probably doesn't have much incentive. Again, I can't speak to all comp plans, but it's like you want to make sure that the vendor is aligned with the cloud, for example, that uh, when I'm talking about salesperson, I'm talking about cloud salespeople. You probably want to make sure that, that the product you're looking at is aligned with that cloud. Because if it's not, there's a good chance that salesperson is going to go against you. So that's just the reality of it. Money talks. So.
Yeah. And I, you know, there's, I'm with you on the kind of marketplace piece. There, there's sort of a parallel here to be like the platform, the open standard, the various thing that isn't just a product, but is something that is, mm. is more fundamental, I guess, than that. I, I think that is also something that's going to change where a lot of data tools up until now have thought a lot about being that there's a lot of like, make our, make our protocol open source so that we are the way that we're a data dictionary type of thing. We have the standard for what it looks like to be a data dictionary. We're not just a data dictionary. We are a thing that like everybody else can build on top of, or we aren't just a metrics layer. We are a standard for how you compute metrics. And like there is some open standard for everybody defining metrics in similar ways. Yeah. Okay. Like I, I think some of that is useful. I, you know, the, the analogy I've used before with this is, Everybody wants to be the app store, but like mm. there are some apps in the app store that make a whole lot of money. And you know, it's a lot right. easier to just be the app. It's just like, I want to be a great app on this other store. I'm not going to worry about being a standard or a protocol or whatever else. Um, I think there is some of that, that that we'll start to see as well, where it's like, forget trying to be a platform. We're just going to take the existing platforms and try to be be a tool that sits on top of that, that, that is helping people do whatever they need to get done. Um, mm. So, you know, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I, there's there's certainly this sense of like greater good isn't really the right thing, but a a something more open than just a product that makes money. Um, mm -hmm. That there's some resistance it feels like to just being sort of a ruthless capitalist and a product that makes money. Uh, and I think that that will start to change um, as things start to consolidate more and stuff like that. That'll just be products that make money. That's interesting. And I think the really interesting thing about the conversation this morning is usually when I read BDM or Substack articles about data tools, and the modern data stack, it's all about the data tools themselves and not about the business proposition. <laughs> and Joe, you always like to talk about the business proposition. And Ben, I get the impression that you like to bring this up a lot too. But I mean, realistically, yeah, what's, what's going to be funding these open source companies in the future? That's what you have to look at, especially if VC money starts to dry up at some point. Mm -hmm. or, multi mm -hmm. or or valuations and multiples start compressing, which they yeah. already are, which right? Already, it's ha it's yeah. happening. So yeah, I think the landscape is going to change quite a bit pretty soon. Um, I mean, because, you know, Matt Turk's slide, which we talk about every week, because it's pretty awesome. Um, you know, that image, that graph is just every vertical has a bajillion companies in it. And as he correctly points out, that's what you see is only a fraction of the companies that are actually in that space. And so... Um, you know, and it, but he brings up a good point at some point, maybe it makes sense that all these companies would exist. Maybe we're in the early days of data and this is just how many companies should be here at some point, but it's hard to but, make an argument with the economics the way they are. What's up? And what, what market's that big? Like what, what right. market supports that many companies? Like sure. I, I, I don't know a single market, you know, like clothing even right. probably not. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know. And that's. Clothing sells to everybody, not to mm -hmm. a handful of nerds that like to hang out on Twitter and argue about <laughs> bundling. Um, like, I, I don't I don't know what market could possibly support right. that many companies, even if it is a trillion dollar market. Like, that's <laughs> the company's got to make some money to sustain, especially if they're paying, you know, high paying engineers in Silicon Valley to build this thing. Like, it just mm -hmm. doesn't there's just no way to make that. that no, the economics certainly don't make any sense. That that's that's totally for sure, and, and yeah, it's um, yeah, I'd be very fascinated to see how this kind of unwinds over the next year or winds up. I'm not sure which way. I mean, the only thing I know is like markets have a weird way of sort of um, fooling all of us for for all the wrong reasons. But but I think to your point though, I mean, you know, I was reading about automobiles. Um, 
uh, for some the automobile industry back in the you know the eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. I mean, there were thousands of car companies, um, thousands and thousands of automobile companies. Every one of which was like, "Yeah, man, we're gonna just kill it and you know um, become the next one." I and mean, how many car companies are there now? I think to your point, uh, not including the electric car vertical, which I think is you know kind of reminds me of the uh, data world in some ways. But but even still, the electric car vertical is what four? Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, they, they name it. Yeah. They're all worth a hundred billion dollars somehow, but like they ship they really ship nine hundred cars. They're they're making a killing it. Yeah. <laughs> That's just it. It's mostly Tesla, right? You have a handful of other players that could be big, but in terms of actual scale electric car makers, it's mostly just Tesla. <laughs> maybe maybe one Chinese player or two. Which and, and Tesla, frankly, is not that big. It's, it, right, valuation right. Still is yeah, you know, but as still a boutique. company, not yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, kind of. Uh, you know, we we're talking about this before the show, but we we're, we're I think we we're talking about what are some. What you know? What do people disagree with in the data world? Uh, you know, what are what are some like fundamental like quasi-religious arguments that people have? I think this consolidation thing is one. I, mm. I think like it's not something that people really discuss that directly. Um, I think there's there's certainly some. How open can this be? You know, like mm. like how how much can this actually be a open ecosystem type of thing where no, there is no lock-in with particular vendors. You can always move around between, but like, I think, I think there's like DBT obviously is big advocates of that for, for reasons that I think are both philosophical for, for who they are, but also, you know, as a product, that's something that they enable and can sell well. Um, but you know, if you're Google, probably you don't think about it. You want the ops. Uh, and I think there will be, there will be some real, friction at some point around that. Um, uh, I don't know. The the only arguments we ever actually have are about SQL formatting or about whether or not data teams should be centralized or decentralized. Like everything else comes out of the set. It's the same question. It's all like comes down to, oh, is this a centralized problem or a decentralized problem? Well, so, uh, I'm, I'm reminded of a, a conversation that you and I had a couple months ago um, when we were introduced. And, and I think one of the things that we... Um, we sort of gelled on. I was like, oh yeah, this guy's pretty cool actually. Um, so uh, it wasn't about leading commas or, or trailing commas in SQL, um, but it was about, you know, why is it in the, in the last, you know, we, we, we've made a lot of advancements in, in the technology, mm-hmm. right? Over the last 10, 20, 30 years or whatever, especially compared to 30 years, dear God. But why is it that we, we keep bringing up the same problems with data, right? This is something that, you know, you and I were talking about and, 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 it, and it really resonates because I, I thought back 20 years ago and I'm like, yeah, that's absolutely right. Like, why are we still talking about like trusting the data? Um, you know, all, all these questions that you, you'd think would be fixed by now, given the amount of money and, and effort thrown into the space. But we're still talking about a lot of the same fundamental questions that we've been talking about for a long time. I don't think those have been solved. I, I don't know. Um, I mean, I like, I think th- there, there are two answers to that to me. Um, <clears throat> Well, maybe three, uh, in sort of descending order of or ascending order of cynicalness. Um, I, I think the least cynical is basically like it's a hard problem. Um, it's a hard problem. It's constantly evolving. You know, the way that we collect data is constantly changing. The things we're trying to do with it is constantly changing. And it's not so much that we're getting worse; it's that we keep shifting the goalposts, and not in like a bad way, in a way that goalposts keep like stretching out further because we see new things that we can do, and so there's always new problems to solve. Um, that that feels a little bit wrong to me because it doesn't feel like 
you could say this it's back to the car bit. You could say the same thing about cars. We keep shifting the goalposts of what cars need to do. It's like first they just need to work, and now they need to drive further distances. And now they do it in like a way that doesn't, you know, spew a chimney out the back. And now they need to do it in a way that's all electric. Like now they do it in a way that's all electric. They can actually drive really far. Like all those problems continue to be harder, but we can at least acknowledge it's like we passed the last checkpoint. And now we're on to the next one. With data, it doesn't really feel like we do that. Um, sort mm. of like we're just trying to get reporting. We still don't really have it. Uh, nobody still agrees to, to stuff. So the, the second kind of more cynical version of this to me is it's a hard problem, but it's fundamentally a people problem and we're not making people any better. And if we don't make people better, then we're all going to be stuck. Um, that that data is really just kind of a, a rhetorical tool for businesses to be able to make decisions. Ultimately, that comes down to like it's an argument. Uh, all these questions about like, I can't see the numbers I actually want to see aren't really about like what those numbers really say. It's more about if we're trying to do a human thing and trying to use data as a proxy for like our opinions and stuff like that. And so it's always going to be messy because it's just humans trying to decide how to do stuff collectively. And like, that's hard. Um, the most cynical answer to me is none of it really matters. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> that like, it's just not that useful. And this is the thing I think a little bit about, you know, are, are we actually that much better off? Uh, is Excel all wrong, but we're still doing okay. Like, there is a constant among companies in the data space. There is a constant kind of like, there's this undercurrent of companies that use data effectively are better. Is that really true? Like nobody really challenges that notion. It's all kind of just accepted as like, of course, being data driven is better. It's like, eh, is it really? Hillary Clinton's campaign was real data driven. Mm -hmm. um, Trump's was not. That didn't go so well. Like, you know, like, that's obviously a particular example, but but like it's not clear to me actually that businesses that use data a ton in general practices are always going to necessarily be better. Um, I think there's something to be said for just like committing to something and making a decision and moving on and things like mm. that. And so it's possible that a lot of this data stuff to me is like sounds good. It's the it's the right sort of tone for the way that we talk about things today uh but in practice it's not not quite as valuable as as we'd like to think of it I, I mean i think we can at least say i think this is an interesting nugget i'll have to mull it over for a long time but we can at least say that a lot of companies that want to be data driven aren't using data appropriately that they're basically just looking for data that reinforces decisions they've already made and spending a lot of money to do that and actually not not like reading the data to try to figure out where they should be going in the future. I don't know. What do you think, Joe? This, this is good controversy. I like this. Well, no, I, I, I think it's, um, I, I sometimes think about this too, right? Cause I, I, um, I like to invert questions. Yeah. You know, Cause sort of like if you, the null hypothesis, what if we just did, what if nothing, right? What if it's, if you just negate the premise that the data is, is useful and, and drives the world, what does it look like? Well, Matt, I, th I think you and I have, a, if, you know, we, we always talk about dark matter companies, for example. These are the companies you, you drive by, you might walk by if you're in New York, but, you know, um, they're profitable. Um, they, they've been making money for ages. You know, they may be a bit antiquated, but does it matter? They're, they seem to be doing all right. Um, you know, like like one, one company here, you know, my, my friend runs, it's a, it's a, a billboard company, right? You want to talk about a monopoly? You want to talk about a great business? Get into the billboard industry. You you basically people pay you like a hundred bucks you know to put put your billboard on there um, you know for the lease of the land um, you, you technically own that spot um, and uh, you know you rent out space that that's 
that's not very data driven, um, you know, and uh, but they, they, they can mark up the prices a lot each year for the same thing. And they say they make a lot of money. That is and that's the absence of having much data to, to drive decisions there. But they seem to be doing pretty well. So, mm. you know. Yeah. And, and to your question, Matt, about, well, are they using it wrong? I, like certainly some companies are and a lot like all of us to some extent probably are. Yeah, yeah that's um, true. I, I think that there's there is kind of a like no true Scotsman argument there mm. though of you know like no true Scotsman thing is like the no true Scotsman would do X thing and then you find someone who does this thing and you're like well that person's not a true Scotsman like so it's like basically it's this tautological thing essentially and so I think there is some of that in the data thing where it's like if you're truly using data correctly, then you wouldn't have these problems. And you're like, well, this company uses data really well, but it doesn't seem to be that useful. It's like, well, they're not truly using it correctly. Like if they were mm. using it correctly, it's sort of where anything that is not, and if it's not valuable, it's because it's not being used correctly. Um, and uh, maybe, but that also sort of starts to challenge the idea that like everybody should be doing it if it's so hard that only a handful of people can do it. Like, I guess maybe we can get to the point where that's better, um, but, but I don't know. I, you know, I, I don't think I believe this. Like, I don't think this is actually where I stand. I think it's probably to me more of the second problem where it's like, it's a human thing. It's messy. Um, but I think it's, it's not a question that, that people in the space often raise is like, how useful is this really? Like people periodically ask questions like, what's the value of a data team? How do we prove our ROI? Those kinds of things. And the answers are, are tellingly hand wavy. Um, where they're sort of like, we can't possibly answer that. Like, of course, how do you possibly measure this sort of stuff? And it's kind of like, okay, that's that may be true, but it's at least somewhat of an indication of like, should we be asking a little bit more fundamental questions here? Mm, that's, yeah. that's good. And I mean, to be completely fair, um, a lot of data scientists are statistically trained and they understand that it's very hard to actually prove with some statistical significance causality. <laughs> And yet all the time they pretend that causality exists where you maybe can't completely justify it. <laughs> so, so we, yeah. get, we definitely get caught in this trap as data people. That's, well, there's, that's uh, Vijay, uh, I think I'm pronouncing your name right. He, he brings up a good point here. He finds it interesting that folks who question their value are data people, not designers or engineers or operations. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we hit on this matter, I think in a few episodes ago where, you know, I mean, if you have to, if you have to shout about how much value you're adding, you're probably not adding that much value. Like your accountant, for example, who's filing your taxes at, person's probably doing they're adding some value to you right um but i think it depends on what, what do you mean by value right because everyone everyone talks about our oh, data needs to add value i'm like i don't know what the hell that means what 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 how do you value value um it's i i asked in like a really dumb way actually on purpose but you know what i'm saying yeah and, and to the question from from the jade like i think i think that's partly true um but also what happens if you get rid of engineers like we can feel, we can see that. Like it's, it's pretty apparent. What happens if we get rid of people who run operations? I, we can see that. Um, what happens if we get rid of data people? Mm, I don't know. Uh, like we can sort of see it, but it's, it's things can continue going on as they were. Um, and they may go on much worse. Uh, and it's like, this is a pretty good point. It's really hard to test that and know like how much worse and stuff like that. But I think it's a reasonable question to ask of data people less so than some of these other folks because their output is at least there. Now you could ask if like something that's well-designed, you know, Craigslist apparently has no designers forever and they seem to do fine. So you could ask whether or not designers are valuable because the output of design is, may not actually be like good design may not actually be worth anything. 
but you can at least see like what is good. Um, and I think that's one of the things with data that's hard is it's it's not it's not even necessarily apparent what what is good or what changes if you if you don't use it as much. I think it really depends on how data is embedded into the company too. You know, like Uber for example, right? Like that that's I think a company that's run on data from the ground up. If you didn't have data driving the application, then it would. Uh, it would really be a crappy experience. Mm -hmm. You don't get any rides. Google's another one, right? Like that's purely a data product. So I really think it depends on like how data is integrated into the company itself, where if you got rid of, you know, a machine learning engineer, you know, or a machine learning team at say Uber, or DoorDash, or whatever, that would probably really suck actually. Um, you know, whereas if you got rid of a machine learning team at Dunder Mifflin, I mean, probably wouldn't make that much of a difference at all. So... Yeah, and and there there are I think I think it's a useful distinction to be made between between the sort of operational data work mm -hmm. and stuff that powers you know yeah Uber doesn't work without that um, yeah. Google does not work without that uh, that's different I think than like the analytical okay let's make better decisions with data um, because it's it's not you know like the the sort of null there is how good of decisions do we make if executives are making decisions off of instinct. Um, and I think it's worse, but is that much worse? I don't know. Um, hmm. you know, I think, I think it's certainly not the way that, that the world is going. And I, I would argue it's probably worse. Uh, like, and I'm very much financially incentivized to argue that with given my relationship <laughs> with mode. Um, but I don't think it's a question we really question much. I think a lot of people hmm. sort of take it on a matter of faith. Um, and that's maybe okay. Uh, but you know, I think it's, it is something that's like, I don't, I don't know how much better we actually are for it. Yeah, and I mean, anecdotally, I think we also all believe for the most part that old companies that have been doing business for a long time have a hard time changing their ways, even with data. So then again, I'm like, is that data really valuable if those companies are not going to change their ways? But then maybe that belief is also incorrect. I don't know. We've gotten, <laughs> gotten into yeah. postmodernism in some sense here. And, and there's and there's also there's also a bunch of stuff I think that, that, that data is very valuable for that isn't yeah. necessarily just making decisions. Like, it's very valuable for getting people aligned. Um, it's very valuable for having like, hey, we have metrics that we think about when we're thinking about how we want to like make changes to the business. We're aligned around this metric is the metric we want to mm -hmm. move. There's like this Airbnb thing about, you know, they have like nights booked or whatever was a core metric for them. Drove a lot of decisions. It's the thing that changed it was the fact that we had like one number to think about. And like, okay, we're now aligned around this thing. We're all kind of marching in the same direction. Like it gives us a mission um, that's a little bit more tangible than just like how much money do we make? Which if you're a designer, you're like, I I don't like I can't affect that. Whereas you can more easily think about how do I affect whether or not somebody books or not or how long mm -hmm. they book. Um, so I think I think in a lot of ways, like data can be very, very valuable on that front. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of like everything, th th there, are, there are other questions to ask. But I think I don't my, my view is this stuff does matter. Uh, but it's still Yeah, I think our, our view is too. I mean, we and it's not just because I think we all have an incentive to do it, but I think we we've seen areas where when it works, it really works, right? Yeah. Like it does drive the business forward. But I think there's also you, you gotta have the organization, you know, the willpower, the support, um, you know, the competency and the team to to really make it happen. Um, it doesn't happen in a vacuum, you know, but that's that's like anything really. So it's because you're talking about change management to some degree, and it's kind of like if you hired a, a you know a personal trainer to help you out, and but you just really chose to sit around drinking beer all day and smoking weed and not exercising, it probably wouldn't be a 
whether it's your time or money or that mm-hmm. or your trainers. So, and I feel that's the same way with, with data. Like you're trying to, sh- in, in a lot of ways, it's, it's no different than beginning of the year where everyone wants to get fit. Everyone wants to be data driven, but it's like at about three weeks into January, a lot of people drop off. And I think that's the same with data initiatives. Like you really got to have the reason, like, why are you doing this? You know, and like, wh- what's it worth to you? Cause if you, if you can't do that, then you just, I think there's a lot of cargo cold, uh, data initiatives. Where you're doing mm-hmm. you're doing data driven just to do it because all your all your friends are you want to have something to talk about but you got to have a reason and and I think th- you, there's a point in there actually is I think maybe a, a, a really good one too on this is a lot of these things aren't going to work like a lot of the data making things better isn't going to work but when it does it can work in spectacular ways um, mm-hmm. and so it's it's and this is you know if you think about like what an engineer does engineers can come in. They can leave every day. The company will be slightly better off. Uh, they will have built something. They will have added something. Like the the, the the structure is improved from where it was at the beginning of the day. Data teams can go six months without doing anything useful. Um, but then they can go a month and produce something that changes the trajectory of the business. And it's like hard to know where exactly that's going to land. And so in some ways, it's like criticizing data initiatives. that a lot of times doing this just now. Criticizing those initiatives may actually be misguided in that respect where you're like expecting everything to be gradual progress where in practice it's like you're looking for the big win you'll hit it every once in a while and you have to accept that some of these things aren't going to actually pan out but that's okay because uber figuring out how to better connect drivers to passengers dramatically changes the business google figuring out something about search dramatically changes the business Mm -hmm. uh you figuring out hey we need to start marketing to this particular cohort more than the other particular cohort dramatically changes the business even if all the other 10 analyses you did told you nothing that's so true. It's very much a power law in that regard. And it's also a human problem once again, and maybe a human problem that engineering doesn't always have in the same way. And that is you build this great data project and then you have to convince executives to actually care and take it into account in making some decisions. And then you can potentially really move the needle afterward. But otherwise that data project may just kind of sit around for a long time and gather dust. Just probably want to get, want to get their support before you do it. Too. Ideally. Yes. <laughs> so, um, cool. I think we're coming up on time, but, um, Ben, a lot of fun chatting with you. I feel like we probably keep talking for a while. So, um, but I, I guess in lieu of that, people would probably want to read uh, what you write because you write a ton. Uh, where could they find your? Um, your where could they find you on the internet? Sure. Um, so yeah. Also, thanks for having me. Uh, this, yeah, has been, this has been fun. Um, so most of the stuff uh, is on Substack. So it's ben.substack.com. Um, it's Ben with two ends. Um, also, Twitter uh, is just. Ben Stancil at Twitter, um, or yeah, at Ben Stancil on Twitter, I guess, uh, is how most of the things are. Uh, that's where that's where you can find most of the various yelling at the sky or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> Rants a bit crazy, man. No, yeah. you you write some seriously good stuff, though. I I, I, I try and check out your stuff every week, and I, I think I turn Matt onto your uh, writings as well. So I appreciate that. Yeah, of course. Um, well, awesome. Yeah, I have to have you back on again sometime. Like I said, it, it's um, I, I just I like your opinions because I think it's it's not just this. It, it's I think a lot of the content out there in data right now is sort of this rah rah. Let's you know, um, let's do data kind of stuff. And I think you take a really sober view of things, um, uh, that I think Matt and I enjoy too, or you know, can definitely appreciate. It's just it's it's. I think it's a very honest view of where the landscape is right now. That's really rare to find, actually. 
So. And you question the assumptions. That's the big one. And especially yeah. amongst startups, that's very, very rare. It's like you said, Joe, just raw, raw. <laughs> so this, this conversation took it's a lot of cheerleading. Time. Yeah. yeah it kind of yeah. drives me insane. Cause it's like, you know, cause well, cause it, it's, it's, it doesn't really, it doesn't accomplish anything. Right? right. Like I think discussions like this, we maybe all be shouting at the, at the sky collectively or into space, but it, you know, at least I think we're, it, we're nudging each other. You know, I feel like I came you know, out of this conversation at least 1% better than I did starting it. So I think it's, that's a good thing to have happen. So I'll take it. I'll take it. Uh, well, I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. And I, you know, I appreciate y'all, y'all having these conversations and stuff too. Uh, like I said, this is, this is fun. Uh, and, and I think that there is certainly some space for cheerleading and some time for, for that. Uh, and I think actually in some ways you can like will your way to solving these problems with that. Mm -hmm. So I think true being the, the, you know, kind of, grumpy guy in the back of the room doesn't always necessarily yeah it is it's the best like results that. but hey uh we all have our roles to play what can i say yeah yeah i guess we don't want to be like the uh debbie downer snl scene uh skit so yeah um, so. i was i was cast as scrooge in a seventh grade uh rendition of christmas carol and i've just been living with that ever since you pulled it off <laughs> yeah the best role of your life yeah was, uh, that's too funny <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> Well, Ben, have a good one. And thanks to the audience um, for the uh, questions. So um, uh, stay tuned for uh, the Friday show. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. So we got uh, Ben Wilson and uh, Michael Burke. Uh, Ben's um, from Databricks and um, uh, Mark's from um, uh, Tubi. So it's going to be a good chat. And um, yeah, stay tuned. It's going to be a lot of fun. And um, thanks for the great questions again. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks, Joe. All right.